This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and with me this week is Laura Souter. Hi there. So this is our second to last episode before we take a break for Christmas. So Dan, what have we got on the show today? I thought in honour of Top of the Pops, I've got the chart countdown for the best and worst performing stock markets around the world. I'll also be looking at what's going on with stocks and shares over the past week and what some of the pub companies have been saying about trading amid the World Cup. Top of the Pops is such a blast from the past. I really want to watch some old episodes now. Anyway, if your train journey has been disrupted by strikes, I'll be talking about what rights you have regarding refunds and compensation. Tom Selby will be on the show later to talk about a review into the age at which people will qualify for the state pension in the future. And we're also going to be hearing from the BBC's Dougal Shaw, who has been talking to Danny Hewson about what makes a good company boss. But for now, Dan, let's dive into markets. What's been happening over the past week? Uh, so we've the FTSE and the S&P 500 in the US, both fairly flat on the week. Chinese stocks have seen a bit more action, a um, couple of days of rallies and sort of pullbacks. I think the key thing here is that people are looking for the Chinese government to essentially say we're going to be less strict on sort of restrictions around um, if you test positive for COVID. So what they really want is for um, businesses and people to be able to to do more stuff, to move around more freely. And of course, that would sort of drive economic activity. So we've just had uh, kind of the first steps towards the government sort of saying uh, we we might relax these rules. So people with COVID in China can now isolate at home rather than in sort of state facilities. And also there's going to be other measures such as decreased testing and lockdowns should only apply to perhaps targeted areas like um, a a building or or certain level of a floor um, in in the sort of a block of flats, for example, rather than whole neighbourhood or, or cities. So I just think that there are investors who are sort of looking for these signs at the moment. And there's definitely more interest, um, certainly from Western investors, in Chinese stocks and Chinese related funds. Um, they've had a, they've been a miserable performance this year. But next year, if the government does look to relax these rules, I think a lot of people are sort of hoping that this could be one of the best performing parts of the market. And we're almost at the end of the year. So how have markets performed in general this year? It's definitely not been plain sailing and an easy ride for investors, has it? No. I mean, there's there's three sort of three parts of the world that actually delivered you positive returns. So um, you know, the, the best has been in India, the S&P BSE 100 index. That's up 8% for the year. And I think you know India seems to be coping with inflation pressures a lot better than other parts of the world. They're still expected to have pretty decent GDP growth next year at 6.1%. And if you compare that to China, that's only going to have 4.4%. And the, sort of the world as a whole, according to forecasts by the IMF, will have 2.7%. So um, overall, India has been you know pretty interesting place for investors this year. So has Brazil. The Bovespa index is up 4%. A lot of that is to do with um, commodity prices, obviously with with the Ukraine war. um, It's pushed up energy prices and also made um, food more expensive as well. Of course, two of the big exports for Brazil are iron ore, so uh, metals, 
Uh, and also soft commodities, so food products as well. So um, again, it's not a really sort of surprise here that they've done so well. But the one that perhaps is a surprise to lots of people is how the UK is the third best performing market in the world. The FTSE 100 is up 2% for the year. I think lots of people say that the, the FTSE 100 is boring, which is full of old economy companies. But actually, you know, exposure to energy companies have benefited from the high oil price this year. Tobacco stocks have been in demand. Anything that's sort of deemed defensive, so where you know either a business or a consumer will buy products and services, no matter whether the economy is good or bad. And of course, there's just lots of those types of companies on the market. So um, you know, names like Pearson, um, the media company, that's up more than fifty percent. BAE, um, the defence company, is up by fifty percent. Glencore and Shell, they've also been standout performers. So in general, you know, you know there's lots of overseas investors hate the UK because they think it's um, you know, the Brexit is a big issue. They don't like the fact that there aren't really sort of fast growth companies there. But actually, you know, it's proved to be a pretty decent place. But the one shock for a lot of investors is in, say, the last decade, they've made loads of money with US stocks. And that's been pretty much the miserable place to be parked your money this year. The S&P 500 is down 17% in a year. And the wow. NASDAQ index is down 31%. So, yeah, all that, all that sort of... It's really painful. Yeah, the good years, people getting so used to sort of saying, you know, I've got lots of US stuff in my portfolio. Yeah, it's been terrible. Lots of D-ratings. Um, you know, the, the, essentially, these stocks are way too expensive at the start of the year. And you've had names like Meta and Tesla and Amazon all coming out with disappointing updates. So it's created this sort of cocktail of um, very much anti, um, uh, you know, US being the place people want in their portfolio at the moment. But of course, longer term, sentiment might shift and turn back to this place. But you know, for twenty twenty two, you know, it seems that boring has been the better place rather than sort of the, the sort of the higher growth areas of the US. Um, for those that are willing to take a bit more risk and not for the faint hearted, certainly, but diving into the US at a point when it's had a bad year, if you think the prospects could be better next year, buying it when it's on that low might be an option for some people. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Just one little thing to consider is whether um, the earnings forecasts have been too, you know, perhaps still too high. There's a concern that. Um, so far, the US seems to be fine. You know, they're not the worries about recession are there, like in other parts of the world. But companies seem to be okay. But there's definitely seems to be a few cracks coming in. And I'm reading some sort of analysis from fund managers and and sort of investment bankers, and they're sort of saying, oh, you know, imagine if they, you know, if the market has got it wrong in terms of earnings forecast for next year, they perhaps could be a little bit too bullish. Um, and people might get caught out. So you know, I'm not saying that anyone knows exactly what will happen next year, but um, the fact that the US has been miserable this year it does not mean that it will be the opposite next year. And a lot of dis- investors have been pretty distracted over the past few weeks as the World Cup has been playing out. I would say Dan and I are probably not in that camp of being hugely distracted by the World Cup, but that won't stop us talking about it. England has its big game against France this weekend and pubs will obviously be hoping that they get lots of people through the door. A weekend match is kind of the golden ticket for pubs, isn't it, in boosting their uh, their profits and their takings? Yeah, Marston's has just come out to say that for the first two England matches in the World Cup, like-for-like drink sales were up 50% versus the same sort of period last year. 
Um, oh, wow. So yeah, quite pretty impressive. So you know, basically, Masters is saying, yeah, yes, there's cost of living crisis. Um, people worry about the money, but there's still signs that, that you know, people are happy to go and they want to watch these matches in a crowd. They don't want to simply just want to do it at home, perhaps with their family or, or a couple of friends. Now, Mitchells and Butlers has just had some results out as well. They didn't mention the World Cup um, directly, but what they said was over the last 10 weeks, they've seen a big improvement in sales. And again, this is quite interesting because I you know, certainly you know, throughout the year, I've heard people say, well, oh, I can't really afford to go out to the pub as much. Um, Weatherspoons has been saying people have been <laughs> fewer pints. Um, certainly the idea of going to a restaurant when actually you could save a lot of money simply by cooking at home. I would have thought someone like Mitchells and Butler, which owns things like Harvester, might have been hit. But they're, they're saying actually it's food sales that have been driving you know, their trading this year. It's not been drink at all. So, uh, I mean, what Laura, have you, what's your sort of socialising trends th- at the moment? Have you found that you're, you're still partying hard or is it all you know, early nights? <laughs> I'm not sure I've parted hard since my 20s. But um, no, I definitely think we're going to the pub less, like more inclined to have a, a drink at home rather than go out to the pub just because it's so expensive going out now. And the same for going out for meals. Um, you know, those kind of quick dinners that you might grab while you're out and about, I'm less inclined to do that now, um, now that everything's a bit more expensive. And I would have thought that's probably the case for lots of people, with the exception, I think, being Christmas, where we've had obviously quite a few years of COVID, either lockdown or disruption to Christmas. And I think this year people are quite excited to get out and about and see people in person at Christmas, whether that's for drinks or for meals. And certainly if you go um, out and about in London, even on random weeknights, even on a kind of Monday or Tuesday night, restaurants and pubs seem to be heaving at the moment. And I, I don't know whether that's kind of a Christmas effect or, you know, people just drinking their cost of living worries away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, some of the pub companies are saying this will be the, the sort of the first Christmas period for three years that they haven't had restrictions on trading. So, um, but of course, we've got these train strikes um, back again. And so this is all the, the big risks is um, you know, pub companies have had bookings for Christmas parties, but what if people just simply can't get there or can't get home afterwards? So there is this risk of got cancellations. And I think there's lots of people who'll be listening to this podcast will be um, affected by this. So uh, I think if you're in the hospitality industry or the retail industry, you're definitely going to be worried about whether customers can get to you or whether staff can get to you. So, I mean, so Laura, wh- where do you stand if your train journey is actually being cancelled as a, as a consumer? Yeah, I think lots of people have kind of booked stuff in, whether that's festive things or work parties or whatever, and booked train tickets um, alongside it. And now there's going to be strikes on those days. And obviously, they've just announced um, the potential for more strikes over Christmas starting on um, Christmas Eve, so 6pm on Christmas Eve. So not not so early as to cause massive, massive disruption, disruption, but that will still cause a lot of problem for people um, that maybe have to work that day and we're waiting until later in the day to travel to family. Um, so there are a few things you can do. If your train's been cancelled, you can get a full refund on your ticket. Um, that is an option. So if you want to look at other ways of travelling, then you can get a full refund. You just you shouldn't incur any fees for doing that. You just need to contact um the 
place where you bought your ticket from, whether that's the train company or, you know, um, a third party. Um, what did happen during the November train strikes is that train companies or National Rail let you use that ticket. If you had a ticket for a specific day, they gave you a broader period where you could use that. So you could use it to travel the day before um, or for a few days after if the strikes were happening on your day. Frustratingly, even though the strikes start next week, National Rail haven't confirmed if that's going to be the case this time around. But I would suspect it would be. But we need to wait to hear from them what the actual parameters were. So before it was, I think, for one day before and maybe three days after um, the strike day, you could use that ticket. But we need to wait for them to confirm that. But definitely check on the National Rail website um, and you'll be able to see on there whether you could just use your ticket for another day to travel on an alternative day. Um, if your train's delayed, so you decide to travel anyway and your train's delayed, which I think would be expected there's going to be a small number of services running but it's likely that obviously they'll be very disrupted and delayed um you can use delay repay so the normal scheme that you would use to claim back some or all of the cost of your ticket it varies depending on the train provider You'll need to check with the specific oper train operator that you're traveling with but generally if you're delayed between 30 minutes and up to an hour you get about half the cost of a one-way journey back um, or over 60 minutes um, you'll get the full cost back uh, but just check and you do have to actively reclaim that in most cases so it's a case of filling out a form um, usually sending you know a picture of your ticket or a pdf of your ticket if you've got an electronic ticket and sending it in to claim that money so definitely make sure that you claim that money back if you are disrupted and um, one thing that i thought was interesting uh when i was researching this is if you're impacted by um tube delay so if you live in london you're impacted by tube or um, transport for London delays or cancellations, you can't get a refund or any compensation for strike action, um, which I hadn't realised. But those people with season tickets, um, will, if you're a season ticket holder, you can contact your provider and you can get a refund for that. Um, another thing that's worth noting is that the National Rail Inquiries Journey Planner, which lots of people use um, to plan out their journeys, isn't actually showing the strike impact at the moment so at the moment if you enter in your details on those strike days um it will be showing you the normal schedule uh so it's expected to be updated kind of around three days before the strike action starts so for strike action next week it's going to be updated on the 9th of december um so something just to be aware of because i think a lot of people will be looking at planning their journey and think oh okay actually quite a lot of journeys are still running i'll be fine but that is likely to not be the case so it's time for some pensions talk. Tom Selby is with us to talk about a review into the state pension age. Tom, it's too close for Christmas for you to bring bad news onto the podcast. So please, <laughs> have you got something positive to say? Is that how you see me, Dan? That's incredibly <laughs> depressing. I don't always bring that bad news. I'll try not to ruin everyone's Christmas, but we are due a review of the state pension age early in 2023. It was actually flagged by Jeremy Hunt in his autumn statement, although he didn't say exactly what was going to happen. So we don't know what that review will find or what it will recommend, but it is possible that it will bring change to the state pension age. So at the moment, the full flat rate state pension is worth just over £9,600 a year. That's just over 
quid a week. And that's set, set to rise to just over £10,000 a year next year because the triple lock, of course, was retained, meaning it's going to go up by 10.1%. Now, not everyone will receive that amount. The amount that you receive will depend on when you reached state pension age and your national insurance record. But that's the most you can receive under the new post-2016 system. So you're entitled to receive your state pension from age 66 at the moment. On the current timetable, that state pension age is set to rise to 67 by 2028 and then to 68 by 2046. Now, the review that's going to be published early next year is going to look at that increase to 68 and potentially beyond. So that increase to, in the state pension age to 68 is due to happen in 2046. The decision will be whether to go slower than that, so to increase to 68 later than 2046, to go faster or to keep it the same. Now, if you'd asked me, say, I don't know, five years ago, um, what's going to happen to the state pension age and the pace of state pension age change, I'd say it's absolutely guaranteed that any review of the state pension age will lead to an acceleration of that timetable. So over decades, we've seen life expectancy, average life expectancy across the country improving and the state pension age hasn't really kept pace with that. So given life expectancy has been improving, given the number of people over state pension age has been increasing and the cost to the state of providing those state pensions has therefore been increasing as well, you'd expect the state pension age to need to rise faster in order to keep the system affordable. Um, however, the most recent available data from the Office of National Statistics suggests actually that life expectancy improvements have not only slowed in recent years, but they've gone into reverse. And so I think that brings into question exactly what the government's going to do when it does come to increase the state pension age. So why have has life expectancy kind of gone into reverse? What's impacted that? Yeah, so we're not entirely sure of all the reasons. Um, one of the, one of the reasons is COVID, so COVID effects. And again, we don't we don't know exactly what the the longer term impact of COVID is going to be on on average life expectancy. So we saw the the hit to average life expectancy uh, at the start of 2020 when COVID hit. Obviously, we've now got vaccines which should improve that but we don't know the longer term effects of covid but we know that in that in that period 2018 to 2020 average um, average life expectancy and projections of that average life expectancy into the future have dropped back as well so the the the, the amount that the government expects us to live um for for people in their mid 60s has dropped back by about 2 years so you would expect all of the things being equal that that change in dynamic might mean that actually the state pension age is going to be held at the current level perhaps for longer and the increase to 68 would happen later. However, clearly the government faces a very difficult financial position at the moment and accelerating the state pension age increases might be deemed the, the least painful way of improving the nation's finances, albeit that would be particularly big electoral gamble, given the propensity of people over state pension age to vote and to vote in particular for the, for the Conservative Party. Um, I think another part of this review, which is going to be interesting to watch, so it's looking at both the affordability of the state pension and where it should be, but it's also considering issues of, 
of fairness in the state pension system. So at the moment, you are paid the state pension at age 66, regardless of your wealth. There's no means testing within the system. So you build up your, your national insurance years and you're paid uh, the state pension that you're entitled to at 66 at the moment, as I said, due to go up to 67 uh, in 2028 and 68 a few years later. Um, but there's a big gap in terms of how long people, for example, in different parts of the the country are expected to to live and people who are in deprived versus less deprived areas are expected to live as well. So if you look at the gap gap in life expectancy between the most deprived and the least deprived areas of the UK, it's about a decade. And so this review is going to consider all factors, including that. And it's possible that the review will consider ways to allow people who have more limited life expectancy to access their state pension earlier. Now, there are different ways that you could do that. You could possibly have early access to the state pension at a reduced rate. You could possibly allow people to access the state pension after achieving a set number of years of national insurance contributions. I think the challenge in all this, as is often the case with pensions policy, is balancing simplicity, so making sure people understand what they're going to get from the state and when they're going to get it, with fairness and trying to make sure that those who perhaps have lower life expectancy are able to get the state pension earlier and so make the most of it. So it's going to be a big one. I think it's going to be quite a controversial one next year. But as yet, I don't know whether it's going to be good or bad news for, for listeners, but obviously we'll we'll keep people updated as and when we, we hear more about the government's plans. Let's move on to the last guest on this week's show. So have you ever wondered what makes a good CEO? It's something investors often ponder and can make a huge difference in the health and resilience of a company. So when Disney recently announced that Bob Iger was returning to the top job, the company's share price definitely perked up. Over the last couple of years, Dougal Shaw has been talking to the bosses of companies big and small and asking them what makes them tick as part of the BBC series CEO Secrets. And with so much material on the cutting room floor, he decided to put it all into a book of the same name. Danny Hewson caught up with him just before the launch and asked if there are any key traits that all successful bosses share. Dougal, thanks very much for talking to us on the Money and Markets podcast. Um, I I would imagine there'll be an awful lot of um, people out there wondering what to buy, the investor that has everything. And I think the book um, could very well find its way onto a a number of their bookshelves post-Christmas. What was the idea behind pulling this together as a book? Because I I know it started as a series for the BBC. In a way, it's been a bit like starting, well, the whole series has been like running a little business. So I've had to be a bit entrepreneurial, but turning it into a book as well, I suppose I kind of spotted a gap in the market in the sense that I've I've done all these um, interviews for the series on BBC News. The series has done really well. It's you know lasted seven years, which is quite a long time. But I also realized that the videos I make are only 90 seconds long. These are the ones that run on TV and on the website and LinkedIn. But often I'd, I'd have spent a lot longer than that with the uh, with the interviewee, you know, maybe sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes. So in the edit, I was choosing one piece of advice they'd given, but I knew that they'd said all these other fascinating things. And it felt to me quite wasteful that all that stuff was just left on the cutting room floor and nobody would ever know about it. So it, it had been on my mind for a long time to try and do something with that material and putting it in a book, I thought, you know, was one one nice way to do it. And, and a funny thing, by the way, is that 
we live in a you know a digital age and everyone's this, this whole series was meant to be a digital first series for for the website and for the web and for social media um and we're always told we've got to think digital but strangely every now it's coming out as a book and people have seen it on paper they go wow the series has really made it now that's a sign it's made it that um that it's in you know this very old-fashioned thing in in paper it's funny i think um all those zoom um meetings and uh, zoom interviews where people had their full bookshelves behind them we got some fascinating uh, insights into people that, that were talking from the books that were behind them. And I, and I know certainly some of my colleagues um, will move their book depending on the subject that they're talking about. So I think yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, books, they still play such a massive part in our lives. This one is full of real insights into how people manage companies and into the personality traits of those people is there something that you were trying to dig out of them? Is there anything that took you by surprise? I wasn't trying to dig anything out at the beginning. I'd, at the at the beginning, it was just let's make the series because I'd started a new job and I wanted to to start a new series. And I thought this would be interesting. It's inspiring, educational for people. So, and I didn't know how long the series would last. It was only by making the series and just kind of, you know, dwelling dwelling on it, thinking about it, that I suddenly realized that, wow, I'm starting to kind of spot patterns in in these interviews and in the encounters with these business leaders. And I suppose that's partly what I thought I could I could put into the book, some of that extra insight. And in the introduction and the conclusion, I kind of uh, re- reflect on that. But the, and the, the kind of headline things, I suppose, that I found were, Definitely, there's a difference between people who founded, who were CEOs because they founded the company originally and then they grew it, um, and people who I think of as corporate climbers. So they've kind of slowly risen up a company that existed before them, um, you know, by various changing different roles that get more and more senior. And what I found meeting these people is that the founder CEOs tended to be quite kind of a bit more gung ho charismatic outgoing spontaneous um yeah quite charming i suppose and also just willing in the whole process of doing the interview whether it's deciding on the location or um you know if we the the backdrop the timing of the interview all the kind of practical things that go on that the audience doesn't see i was just noticing little things uh in those moments where i thought yeah these people are kind of open to improvisation and they have a bit of a kind of devil may care attitude sometimes where and I appreciate these are generalities, and so of course there were you know exceptions to this, but I did spot. Nevertheless, I spotted this as a pattern just thinking about it. Um, and the people who are corporate climbers tend to be a lot more careful, analytical, reserved, and uh, less willing to, to take risks. So, for example, if we if we were in a location where there was a really good backdrop uh, and it might be nice to film, but we thought there's a risk of noise, so maybe that would spoil it then maybe the career climber type person would be, well, no, let's just do it in the safe place. Then we know it's good or it's done. Whereas the founder might be more open to taking the risk. So little things like that, personality traits. Um, And also the people who are career climbers, I found, treated the contributions to this series almost like a kind of exercise, like an exam or something. So they'd often come with their advice pre-prepared and they'd want to kind of recite it word for word. And some, you know, sometimes I let them do that if I thought it was very good advice. But often I feel my job is to have a conversation with these people and really tease out between us 
what the most useful thing for the audience will be and it might not be what they think it is um and actually i was thinking about this the other day i didn't have time to put it in the book because it's kind of a reflection that came too late but an obvious difference between the founder ceo and the uh, career climber the corporate climber is that a founder ceo has never had to interview for their position at the company of course they haven't because they started it they've been the main man or woman there since the beginning whereas the climber has gone through a series of interviews where they've been you know cross-examined they've been judged they've been rated so i think sometimes they keep a little bit that sense of uh, of being watched of being evaluated that, that never quite leaves them so that was one thing i spotted and uh, the other thing a like, big thing i found quite early on was that men and women gave quite different advice so in I mean, in the early days of the series, I would literally literally say to people, what's the advice you wish you had when you started out? It's quite an open question. And I did broaden it out quite quickly to say, actually, you can tell that in the form of a story because that worked quite nicely. But what I, what I tended to find and have found it continuously, you know, even the last few weeks I've been making the series and this has come up. In general, women will preferred to tell, um, to give their advice in the form of a story, which is great. I love it because it's worked really well for the video. But often they'll talk about a moment of vulnerability, which they had to overcome. They had to overcome a problem, and they talk about that kind of moment of weakness and overcoming it. Whereas in uh, in general, the men might be a bit more likely to give kind of straight, you know, practical mechanical advice. Now, investors listening to this will be really interested whether or not you can sort of spot character traits which make a good, successful boss for a big company. Is there sort of a reason for success that that people tend to point to, or is everybody different? Um, again, I think it tends to depend how you've got to the top, because it's a very different route if you founded your own company or if you've been a career, uh, a corporate climber. The, so the big thing I'd say with the corporate climbers is all the successful ones I met recognized actually two things. The first one was... Um, that you need to build up a network of support in your business. For example, I'd say this is something I'm not I'm not good at, but you, you actually need to devote a lot of your time to networking, uh, even when you're in a big company. It's like the equivalent of being in a in a startup and having to, you know, find stakeholders and new customers. If you're in a big organization, you've got to devote a certain amount of your time each day to organize proactively organizing meetings with colleagues, with potential allies. Um, all these things it's not people often tell me it's not just about meeting your targets for the next one-on-one -on -one of your manager you've got to devote a, you've got to devote time to building your network and be really uh, deliberate about that and and also look for support sometimes there'll be networks of people uh, available within the company to you know kind of mentorship programs obviously and things like that but sometimes you can find support networks uh, from specific organizations for example for um BAME groups from out, out with the organization, but you definitely need that for support. One really interesting bit of advice, because I love it in the series when somebody says something counterintuitive counter and I'm like, my ears prick up and go, what, what's this person saying? Um, but Stephen Allen, who was CEO of Mediacom when I spoke to him a few years ago, said his sort of trick for rising up his company to the very top is that basically he grooms his successor so when he's in you know a senior position in the company he's actually looking for someone similar to him who he can give or her the right skills um and all the experience all the things they need to be if 
you might think of it as being a rival to him, but no, it's not a rival. It's the person who can replace you. And once you've been replaced, if the company's well run, then you move up the next, you know, rung in the ladder to get to the next bit. So actually groom your successor is quite a good um, piece of advice to move up. Um, so those are those are things from when you're in a big company. In, term, in terms of the founders, the people who started a company from scratch, um, I've said already that I think they do have a bit of this kind of freewheeling personality, a bit more likely to be spontaneous, take risks, quite you know charismatic. You can see why they're good at winning over investors and um, and and clients and customers and things. Um, but I also uh, I also see other traits in them. Sometimes I think you can be like it's the the word delu delusional sounds quite strong and it's often used uh, as a bit of an insult. But what one particular entrepreneur who's like a an uh, an Indian entrepreneur who's become a billionaire now through very successful companies like Flock and Zeta um, is a guy called Bhavan Tarakia, and he told me that all entrepreneurs need a certain healthy amount of delusion, because basically in the early stages, a good entrepreneur of a successful company has seen value in something where others don't yet. They're they're kind of ahead of the game, so they've seen something in the world that others haven't caught up with, and they've got then that kind of time advantage to grab that idea, grab that kind of intellectual real estate and make make money out of it, turn it into a company. So you have to be a, a bit delusional to be like that and kind of not care what other people think, not care about their mentality, but almost feel like the world revolves around you a little bit. And that's another kind of little personality trait I've seen in some of the successful entrepreneurs who've built things from scratch. They're a bit... Um, kind of if if you say something to them they they don't kind of ex they say why can't it be this way they, they, if you sort of challenge them a bit and say well no, you can't do that oh why can't it be like this way and they don't they don't see problems when things don't work they think things need to, to fit their you know what they want that's a bit of a characteristic um and another thing that jumps to mind there is that recently it hasn't gone out yet this interview but i spoke to greg pecker who is uh sorry greg becker i spoke to greg becker who is CEO of Silicon Valley Bank in America, and they've funded a lot of very big startups like uh, Cisco Systems and Pinterest, and uh, I think they might have been there for Airbnb in the early days as well. So he's met a lot of founders before they were big when they're just trying to raise money at the very early stages. And I said to him, "What do you spot anything looking back on it on these founders at that time? And he said, he, I think he did use the word a bit delusional as well, but he said there's just their voice raises when they're talking about their idea. They're on the tips of their toes. They're kind of leaning out of their seat. They've got, they do have that kind of conviction that their idea is going to win out and and is and is correct despite what other people think. So that was the BBC's Dougal Shaw talking to Danny Hewson. And Dougal's book, CEO Secrets, is available from Bloomsbury Publishing now. So that's all we have time for this week on the podcast. Don't miss next week's show, as we've got quite a few fund managers talking about stocks that are exciting them for 2023. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change, and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Music